You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Life Community Church. We say this every week. We are a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. Uh, We strive to do that through four different values, by practicing love with everyone always, by giving more than what makes sense, chasing after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives, and ultimately anchoring ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word. That's who we are. That's what we want to be. We're glad that you're here, whether you're in person or online. Just a couple things for you to note. Uh, number one is if you're here, last week we were really tight and squeezed in here. I think this week the snow maybe said, I'm going to stay at home today. Uh, but just know our youth room is open. It's a great space if you have kids and you're uncomfortable being in here, uh, which by the way, your kids are amazing and they do a great job of being in here. Uh, but you're welcome to use the youth room over there. Secondly, just want to, you to know we're going to do something new. Uh, we're going to use something called Kahoot. It's just a fun word to say. That's the only reason what we're doing it, because I just wanted to say Kahoot. But it's an online trivia thing, all right? We'll just call it a trivia thing. So what you're going to do is you're going to zoom in, and we're going to have a a night where we're going to get to know each other, and we'll play some fun trivia. It'll be family-oriented. There's a little bit of instruction that you'll need to follow. You'll need a couple different devices, one to kind of zoom with and one to plug your answers in. It promises to be a good night, so you can be with us, whether you're family, whether you're single, whether you're old or young. Uh, It's going to be a great night. So that's on the 28th. We'll talk more about it as we come closer. Lastly, just keep this in front of us. Let's just keep using our prayer wall. Go to it when you need prayer. Go to it as you should to pray for others. So that's just something that we offer at lifecommunityprayer.net, and we want to keep utilizing it. We're going to be in Matthew 5 today, as we have been for the last few weeks. And if I'm here today, it means this. My wife has yet to have a baby. Uh, Our due date is Friday. So who knows what happens at this point. Uh, That's 40 weeks. We went 42 with Ellie and Camille. So it could be a while, and we'll just keep going. Uh, The name, we haven't decided a name yet. Nikki uh, figured out pretty quickly that all the names I was giving to her was Cubs players. (laughs) She figured that out pretty quickly. She's a smart cookie, so. Pray for us, pray for her. We're in the slowdown stage. All right, let's look at Matthew Chapter 5, starting in verse 1, these are the Beatitudes of Jesus. This is, these are characteristics of those who live in God's happy, fortunate kingdom. I always feel like Bob Ross when I talk about that, like the happy, fortunate little people here in God's kingdom. Let's read Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today under your word. And Father, we just pray that you would use it to illuminate our lives. That you would use it to transform our lives. Let us not be the obstacle that gets in the way. And so Lord, we just pray that you would soften our hearts today. That you would help us to hear your wisdom. That you would remove distraction in us. And we pray this boldly through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, you kids in here, what we're going to talk about today is something that you're actually pretty decent at. Uh, We're going to talk about mourning. And I find that kids are really good at showing us when something is wrong in your life, whether you, as a kid, want to admit to it or not, just as in the same way your parents always know when you're tired. I quit fighting that battle. We just know when you're tired. Mom and dad know when you're grieving, when you're sorry, when you're hurting. We don't do a good job as kids of covering that up. But as we grow older, it is something that we unlearn. It's something that we learn to actually cover up, to hide. And so we're going to talk about the importance of mourning, not when the sun comes up, but mourning that comes with grief and sorrow. So I'm going to give you five words, as always, that are written down on your little sheets. And those five words are forgiven, sorrow, intersect. That's a kind of a big word. That's when two things come together. Rejoice and happy. We're going to walk through those today. You know, some of my favorite memories as a child growing up were going to Hirely's Meat Market with my mother, right? And just walking through those super heavy metal front doors And then you were just hit with the sight of cakes and donuts to your right and overwhelmed with that smell of just pastries mixed with raw meat, just this (laughs) glorious conglomerate that just was much to your senses. And you walked in, you grabbed the the metal cart, and you steered past that old rickety floor that was never even. And then you walked past the bin where there were salads that were made of meat, And you thought, how do you think of such salads that are made with meat? And how can you have so much assortment? And then you go, this is all disgusting. As a kid, meat salad sounds horrible. And then you grab that number. You guys remember the number, the orange letters and plastic, and you grab it. And then you would begin what? You would begin to scheme, how many donut holes can I get this time, right? That's what you would begin to do. And if you're a local in here, you can still, if you allow yourself, you can hear the sound of that butcher paper just pulling and... ripping, and the clank of the metal carts in the front of the store, and the beep of the antiquated cash register, it's all there. But in the years prior to its closing, there was a sense of loss, a sense of loss in going. Now, certainly the smell remained, probably is still there today. But little by little, the things that we associated with those memories went away and changed. And this little mom-and-pop icon in our community was swept away by time. And somewhere in the midst of that, or maybe afterwards, you may begin to mourn the gap of what was versus what is. 
that you mourn the casualty of progress and change, a morning where things fail to meet your expectations, mourning the gap that was created in your loss. Mourning has a meaningful place and purpose in our life because there is much to mourn if we allow ourselves to go there. But allowing ourselves to go there is probably the hardest step, isn't it? Grieving, mourning, sorrow, however you want to describe those postures, those emotions are the most difficult emotions and postures for us as human beings to walk into. There's just an innate hardness to all of it. And then you sew that in on top of an already blinded culture that doesn't value mourning as we ought to. One of the unexpected side effects of the Western culture that has great desire for efficiency and production in its all-encompassing focus on doing and that it has brought a devaluing on mourning, a devaluing on feeling and sensing the gap between what was and what is and naming it, devaluing sorrow and grief, diminished simply because it's deemed not to be that productive, deemed not to be beneficial. Mourning is something that gets in the way of our living. It is a hindrance that we take great pains to avoid and cover up. And in doing that, all we tend to do is project our pain and sorrow onto other people so we can sow chaos into our lives that we never have to find and deal with the chaos in our own hearts. One of the discussions that I'll never forget in our men's fraternity class that we have here at Life Community was the time we spent talking about a generation of fathers in this country who went to war in Europe. And for self-preservation, they detached themselves from their emotions, from grieving, from mourning, because so many of their friends were dying around them, and war itself is hard. And so out of necessity to persevere, they became hardened. And that is right and healthy in the dysfunction of war. But it is tragically unhealthy in the day-to-day -day functions of living, in raising a family, and in loving. And so these young men came back doing the best that they could, but most of them remained emotionally unattached because of the scars of war. And they sewed in and raised a new generation of men and women who were taught to detach themselves from emotion and mourning at all cost, that it would be uncomfortable for them to feel that. And it influenced an entire culture to see mourning not as a measure of health, but actually a trait of weakness. Something that we don't have time for, nor has great benefit. And that really helped create what I see as two ditches on the pathway of healthy mourning that a lot of us operate in. There are all sorts of shades of healthy mourning, but there are two ditches that we often find ourselves in, that were created from this reality in our culture. One ditch where we're just resolved to never show it, never deal with it, never feel it. And on the other side, where we just become victims, that everybody's out to get me, nobody likes me, the world is working against me. 
That is where we often operate. And so if we're going to understand what it means to be blessed in mourning, what it means to, that we shall find comfort in the Lord, it first has to start with recognizing that this is something we're uncomfortable with. Mourning is not necessarily in our natural ability. And so when we come to this passage in, in Matthew, where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is attached to all sorts of learned behaviors and, and beliefs that make this statement feel effeminate, weak, and unnecessary. But our Savior declares that this is a characteristic of his happy, blessed, fortunate kingdom. That those who mourn are happy, fortunate people. And it's quite paradoxical, isn't it, to hear this statement, blessed are those who mourn, because it actually translates nearer, happy are the sad. Happy are the sad, and that seems like a contradiction. You can't be happy and sad at the same time, but our scripture compels that there is wisdom in knowing a sorrow that leads to rejoicing, a sorrow that leads to joy. And the Bible makes a distinction between two different types of mourning. And we find that in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 7. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so we have these two different types. We have godly grief versus worldly grief. And it seems a bit tidy to define worldly grief as not getting what we want. But it seems all too impossible to separate the causality of our grief and the feeling our grief in worldly grief and godly grief. They are both shaped by the effects of sin in this world in our life. What is important to note in these is not the feeling or the posture of that grief, but what that grief produces. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death that leads to death. Well, one, worldly, we mourn and become angry at the comparisons of others in their life. The other, we mourn and we give it to God. And we walk into confession and repentance as we embrace his fullness and sufficiency. When Jesus says, blessed are those who are mourning, he is most assuredly talking about mourning that comes from sin that leads to repentance. Sin that is decaying in its effects on the world and the sin that has brought brokenness into our hearts. And I think it's important to, this, to make distinction here that there are many of us that are introverted and have melancholy in our souls. We're not talking about a personality trait. We're talking about mourning that comes from sin that leads to repentance. And so if we're going to understand godly grief and mourning this morning, we first should look at God. And we'll do that by looking at Jesus. The Bible describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. How do we know that? How do we know or see 
Jesus mourn? Well, there's two occasions that we're going to look at today. One's going to be in John 11. The other's going to be in Luke 19. We'll start in the Gospel of John. One day, Jesus' friends, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus was desperately ill. And when Jesus heard this terrible news, he went to Bethany to see them. But by the time that he arrived, Lazarus was already dead. And that's where we'll pick up the story here in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Why, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept. Right? Every Sunday school kid's most famous verse, right? So memorizing that verse, it's pretty easy. It's the shortest verse in all the Bible, but one that's probably most revealing about Christ. Jesus knows how to feel mourning. He knows how to mourn the loss of somebody you love. And my guess that this is a more than a lump in a throat and a single tear sort of mourning from Jesus. It says that in his spirit he was deeply moved and troubled, so much in grief that those around him noticed it. So why did Jesus mourn here? Jesus knew that in a few moments that they were going to have Lazarus back. Why is he weeping? And I think there are lots of reasons that we can kind of assume here that he's weeping over the loss of a close friend, and it hurt. And he's weeping for the sadness that's all around him. He knew that Lazarus would come back to them, but only for a time. Death was still stalking them and would continue to rob them from one another. He was mourning the lack of faith on the part of those who had been with him for so long and the hypocrisy of a crowd who were already plotting his death. Everything that was wrong with the world was present and on display at the tomb of Bethany. Sickness, death, loss, hatred, unbelief, it broke his heart because this is not what God had in mind for humanity. And so he wept. And the second time that we see Jesus weep is recorded in Luke 19. It was on Palm Sunday, the day of his triumphal entry. Crowds of people had lined his pathway into the city, praising and cheering his name. But as Jesus turns the corner and sees the city, we read this. Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying... Would that you, even you, he's talking to Jerusalem here, this holy city, had known on this day the things that make peace free or make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
here is what suspected to be one of the biggest, brightest days in Jesus' life. Everybody loves a parade. But Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of the religious and political leaders of that day. He knows the deceit. He knows the cowardice, the cruelty, the injustice that's going to unfold in mere days. He knows that there are many in that cheering cheering crowd that in just a matter of moments and days are going to reject him and call for his blood. And it broke his heart. That city could have known peace. They could have known joy. That nation could have waited and welcomed their long-awaited Savior. Instead, they went about rejecting him and bringing disaster on themselves and their children, and it was a tragedy, and Jesus wept over it. When the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled in spirit outside the tomb of Lazarus, we have to recognize that the pattern of Jesus is that he mourns appropriately. We have to recognize that there is a pattern here in Jesus where he mourns. And so that means that when we read and feel a division in our culture, like when we read and hear about young children who are working 12 or 14 hours a day in mines and diamond mines, when we hear of young women being sold into slavery or see an entire group of people diminished and ostracized simply because of the color of their skin. It is right for us to mourn. It is right for us to be outraged. How can we not feel the brokenness of this world? It is plain and obvious. It doesn't take much to see it. It is okay to mourn. It is okay to name it, to cry out to our God for comfort. And it's just just not the world that breaks our hearts. It's what's wrong with us that does. We twist the truth to get out of jams. We say hurtful things to people we love. We commit adultery in our hearts. We spend on ourselves things that we could give to others. We lose our temper. We look down at others. We spread gossip and we wallow in envy. And we do all of these things knowing that they're wrong, knowing that they're hurtful to us and to others, knowing that they fall short of the good things that God has created us for. I heard a pastor one time note the difference between mistakes and sin. He said a mistake is a goof off a goof up, an error, a miscalculation. You regret a mistake. You apologize for a mistake. You might even try to make right your mistake. But you don't mourn a mistake. What you mourn is sin. A fundamental flaw in our character that compels us to think or say or do the wrong thing. A skew in our spirit that consistently takes us in the wrong direction. We were made to be generous, yet we lean into greed. We were made and designed to treasure our design in its uniqueness. Instead, we belittle it. We were wired to worship God, but instead we worship sports teams and cars and nature and ourselves. We're not just mistakers. 
We're sinners. To mourn is to face the truth about ourselves and the world and the truth that we are messed up people living on a messed up planet. And when we finally realize that, when we finally admit that we're sinners, not just mistakers, all we can do is hang our head and weep. And it's that intersection between our mourning and the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Repentance is the place where our mourning intersects with the goodness and the grace of God. Now, there seems to be an order in these Beatitudes, although all of these Beatitudes sort of stand on their own. But there seems to be a little bit of an order here. Last week, we talked about being poor in spirit. And we said being poor in spirit is to know and see that I have nothing to bring, nothing to own, nothing to give my king. To see and know that. And you can't mourn if you first aren't poor in spirit. Because this is what mourning means. Poverty in spirit is seeing and knowing it. Mourning is feeling it. Mourning is feeling the separation that I have between God and myself. And then next week, we move into meekness, which means that you accept it. Knowing, seeing it, mourning is feeling it, being meek is accepting that. All have to be there. The point of this is that you have to be poor to mourn. On the heels of that comes with being poor, on the heels of what it means to be poor in spirit comes the sobering discovery that I've got worse than nothing. I've got sin. And the truth is that you have to experience both before we're transformed. And so maybe you're asking, like, where does the blessed in this kick in? Because this is heavy. Where does the blessed part of this kicked in? Blessed are those who mourn, right? Why is it blessed? Because the gospel begins with heartbreak. Once we acknowledge that something's wrong with us, then we're ready to be made right. When we finally face the truth about our sin, then we're ready to be saved from it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so let me offer you just four real quick reasons why we are blessed in our mourning. Why, as uncomfortable as it is, there's a blessing in mourning. As uncomfortable as it is to mourn, it is in the fertile grounds of the valley of mourning that our true healing begins. This is our first benefit. As much as I would like it to be possible in my life, and as much as you would like it to be possible in your life, you cannot live on the mountaintop forever. If you think of a majestic range of mountains, the further you go up on that mountain, the less growth and vibrancy you'll see. And that principle rings true in our lives. As fun as it is to be on top of the mountain, we will not find transformation there. It is the grace of the Father that brings us to the fertile valley of mourning. To know our hearts, to feel our sin, to know the depths in which we could love. It is in the valley that we become new creations where we have new hopes that grow, where peace is found, where joy can be known again. The hardest places of my life have been the valleys. But the most beneficial 
places in my life have also been that valley. Everything that has been good in my life has come through mourning, has come through the fertile valley of mourning. It is a grace that God puts us there as hard as it can be. As much as we like to stay on the mountain, it is only when we're stripped away and made low that new hope and new joy and grace abounds. Secondly, we are blessed because our sins can be forgiven. We are blessed because our sins can be forgiven. If all we were were mistakers, you could just try harder. But if you're a sinner, all you can do is repent and confess. And you realize the truth in John 1 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all sorts of unrighteousness. And that is true whether you're coming to God with a, for the first time with a boatload of sin or coming to God for the hundredth time with your same old sin. You can walk out of here today forgiven. And the third reason that we are blessed in our mourning It's because there's a better world to come. Everything that is wrong about this world, everything that is wrong about ourselves will be made right. The Bible gives us a vision of a new heaven and a new earth, a holy sitting that is descending from heaven. And that city will not be like the city that Jesus wept over and nothing like the city that we live in. In the holy city, There will be no death, there will be no crying, there will be no pain. All the old will pass away, and Jesus will wipe away every tear. We can be low now because one day we will be lifted high. And the fourth is this. Mourning brings us into the transformational community of believers. It brings us into the transformational community of believers. We don't have to put on the plastic smiles that says, I'm happy. That's what we want to do when we come to church. We want to make everybody think that everything's all right. We don't have to come as one who has everything together. Here or out there, we don't have to greet each other. We can come feeling sad or mad or bad because we need to. That is part of what it means to be blessed in mourning. That those who are poor in spirit, those who can mourn, there is a happy, blessed, fortunate life that comes with communally journeying through that mourning together. And Paul writes about that in Galatians. In Galatians 6, he says, Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Burden bearing bears and fulfills the law of Christ. We can share our griefs together, our mournings together, and there is a joy and a blessing in that. Uh, There's a story about a a man named Hans. Not an option for a baby serval. Hans isn't. He's a European seminary professor, and he was devastated by the death of his wife. And Hans was so overcome with sorrow that he lost his appetite and he didn't want to leave his house. And so out of concern, the seminary president, along with three other professors, went to his house and the grieving professor confessed that he was struggling with doubt. 
And he said, I am no longer able to pray to God. And he admitted to his colleagues, in fact, I am not certain I believe in God anymore. And after a moment of silence, the seminary president said, then we will believe for you. And we will pray for you. And these four men met daily for months, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their friend. And some months later, as these four friends gathered together to pray, Hans smiled and said, it is no longer necessary for you to pray for me today. Today, I would like you to pray with me. We are blessed and comforted, not by a God, simply by a God that meets us in our morning, but we are blessed, happy, and fortunate because we are a people who mourn together. And that is a profoundly rich reality. Blessed are those who mourn. Maybe our first step today in mourning is just to name it. (laughs) It is so tough, particularly for you who are men like me and emotionally, um, I don't know what the word is, broken, to just name what we mourn. But it is in our mourning that God meets us and comforts us. And we can be weak to be strong. We are so countercultural to the Bible. Everything that we read in the Beatitudes feels like weakness when it's actually strength. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is a rich blessing to mourn with God and to mourn with others. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today and we just recognize the, the hardship of dealing with things that we don't want to deal with, things that cause us despair and sorrow and grief. Lord, we feel like we have to be okay. We feel like we just have to mow over them and keep going. We, we live in a culture that doesn't see mourning as blessed, but as weakness. So, Lord, we pray through your spirit that you would help us to unlearn what we've learned. That we would see the deep blessing and comfort that comes with naming the gap between what was and what is in our life. And that, Lord, we pray that in that morning, you would keep us from anger in the comparisons of our lives versus other. But Lord, that in our mourning, that in your fullness and grace and perfection and goodness, it would lead us to repentance, Father. And joy of what we have and what we will have in you. And we pray this boldly and humbly through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.